Section 7 of the History of Emily Montague, Volume 2, by Francis Moore Brook. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Section 7. Letters 115 to 124. Cast List. Edward Rivers. Read by Jim Locke emily montague read by emma hatton arabella fairmore read by grace buchanan william fairmore read by kevin s narrated by sonia letter one hundred and fifteen to mrs temple paul mall quebec april second i have this moment my dear a letter from montreal describing some lands on lake champlain which my friend thinks much better worth my taking than those near the camaraskas he presses me to come up immediately to see them as the ice on the rivers will in a few days be dangerous to travel on i am strongly inclined to go and for this reason i am convinced my wish of bringing about a friendship between emily and madame de roches the strongest reason i had for fixing at the camaraskas was an imprudent one gratitude and if the expression is not impertinent compassion give me a softness in my behaviour to the latter which a superficial observer would take for love and which her own tenderness may cause even her to misconstrue a circumstance which must retard her resolution of changing the affection with which she has honoured me into friendship i am also delicate in my love and cannot bear to have it one moment supposed my heart can know a wish but for my emily shall i say more the blush on emily's cheek on her first seeing madame de roches convinced me of my indiscretion and that vanity alone carried me to desire to bring together two women whose affection for me is from their extreme merit so very flattering i shall certainly now fix in canada i can no longer doubt of emily's tenderness though she refuses me her hand from motives which make her a thousand times more dear to me but which i flatter myself love will overrule i am setting off in an hour for montreal and shall call at salary to take emily's commands seven in the evening day chambeau i asked her advice as to fixing the place of my settlement she said much against my staying in america at all but if i was determined recommended lake champlain rather than the camaraskas on account of climate bell smiled and a blush which i perfectly understood overspread the lovely cheek of my sweet emily nothing could be more flattering than this circumstance had she seen madame de roches with a calm indifference had she not been alarmed at the idea of fixing near her i should have doubted of the degree of her affection a little apprehension is inseparable from real love my courage has been to-day extremely put to the proof had i stayed three days longer it would have been impossible to have continued my journey 
the ice cracks under us at every step the horses set a rather unpleasant circumstance on a river twenty fathom deep i should not have attempted the journey had i been aware of this particular i hope no man meets inevitable danger with more spirit but no man is less fond of seeking it where it is honourably to be avoided i am going to sup with the seigneur of the village who is i am told married to one of the handsomest women in the province adieu my dear i shall write to you from montreal your affectionate ed rivers letter one hundred and sixteen to mrs temple pall mall montreal april third i am arrived my dear after a very disagreeable and dangerous journey i was obliged to leave the river soon after i left des chambeaux and to pursue my way on the land over melting snow into which the horse's feet sunk half a yard every step an officer just come from new york has given me a letter from you which came thither by a private ship i am happy to hear of your health and that temple's affection for you seems rather to increase than lessen since your marriage you ask me my dear lucy how to preserve this affection on the continuance of which you justly say your whole happiness depends the question is perhaps the most delicate and important which respects human life the caprice the inconstancy the injustice of men makes the task of women in marriage infinitely difficult prudence and virtue will certainly secure esteem but unfortunately esteem alone will not make a happy marriage passion must also be kept alive which the continual presence of the object beloved is too apt to make subside into that apathy so insupportable to sensible minds the higher your rank and the less your manner of life separate you from each other the more danger there will be of this indifference the poor whose necessary avocations divide them all day and whose sensibility is blunted by the coarseness of their education are in no danger of being weary of each other and unless naturally vicious you will see them generally happy in marriage whereas even the virtuous in more affluent situations are not secure from this unhappy cessation of tenderness when i received your letter i was reading madame de maintenon's advice to the duchess of burgundy on this subject i will transcribe so much of it as relates to the woman leaving her advice to the princess to those whom it may concern do not hope for perfect happiness there is no such thing in this sublunary state your sex is the more exposed to suffer because it is always in dependence be neither angry nor ashamed of this dependence on a husband nor of any of those which are in the order of providence let your husband be your best friend and your only confidant do not hope that your union will procure you perfect peace the best marriages are those where with softness and patience they bear by turns with each other there are none without some contradiction and disagreement do not expect the same degree of friendship that you feel men are in general less tender than women and you will be unhappy if you are too delicate in friendship beg of god to guard your heart from jealousy do not hope to bring back a husband by complaints ill-humour and reproaches 
the only means which promise success are patience and softness impatience sours and alienates hearts softness leads them back to their duty in sacrificing your own will pretend to know right over that of a husband men are more attached to theirs than women because educated with less constraint they are naturally tyrannical they will have pleasures and liberty yet insist that women renounce both do not examine whether their rights are well founded let it suffice to you that they are established they are masters we have only to suffer and obey with a good grace thus far madame de maintenon who must be allowed to have known the heart of man since after having been above twenty years a widow she inflamed even to the degree of bringing him to marry her that of a great monarch younger than herself surrounded by beauties habituated to flattery in the plenitude of power and covered with glory and retained him in her chains to the last moment of his life do not however my dear be alarmed at the picture she has drawn of marriage nor fancy with her that women are only born to suffer and to obey that we are generally tyrannical i am obliged to own but such of us as know how to be happy willingly give up the harsh title of master for the more tender and endearing one of friend men of sense abhor those customs which treat your sex as if created merely for the happiness of the other a supposition injurious to the deity though flattering to our tyranny and self-love and wish only to bind you in the soft chains of affection equality is the soul of friendship marriage to give delight must join two minds not devote a slave to the will of an imperious lord whatever conveys the idea of subjection necessarily destroys that of love of which i am so convinced that i have always wished the word obey expunged from the marriage ceremony if you will permit me to add my sentiments to those of a lady so learned in the art of pleasing i would wish you to study the taste of your husband and endeavour to acquire a relish for those pleasures which appear most to affect him let him find amusement at home but never be peevish at his going abroad he will return to you with the higher gust for your conversation have separate apartments since your fortune makes it not inconvenient be always elegant but not too expensive in your dress retain your present exquisite delicacy of every kind receive his friends with good breeding and complacency contrive such little parties of pleasure as you know are agreeable to him and with the most agreeable people you can select be lively even to playfulness in your general turn of conversation with him but at the same time spare no pains so to improve your understanding which is an excellent one as to be no less capable of being the companion of his graver hours be ignorant of nothing which it becomes your sex to know but avoid all affectation of knowledge let your economy be exact but without appearing otherwise than by the effect do not imitate those of your sex who by ill temper make a husband pay dear for their fidelity let virtue in you be dressed in smiles and be assured that cheerfulness is the native garb of innocence 
in one word my dear do not lose the mistress in the wife but let your behaviour to him as a husband be such as you would have thought most proper to attract him as a lover have always the idea of pleasing before you and you cannot fail to please having lectured you my dear lucy i must say a word to temple a great variety of rules have been given for the conduct of women in marriage scarce any for that of men as if it was not essential to domestic happiness that the man should preserve the heart of her with whom he is to spend his life or as if bestowing happiness were not worth a man's attention so he possessed it if however it is possible to feel true happiness without giving it you my dear temple have too just an idea of pleasure to think in this manner you would be beloved it has been the pursuit of your life though never really attained perhaps before you at present possess a heart full of sensibility a heart capable of loving with ardour and from the same cause as capable of being estranged by neglect give your whole attention to preserving this invaluable treasure observe every rule i have given to her if you would be happy and believe me the heart of woman is not less delicate than tender their sensibility is more keen they feel more strongly than we do their tenderness is more easily wounded and their hearts are more difficult to recover if once lost at the same time they are both by nature and education more constant and scarce ever change the object of their affections but from ill-treatment for which reason there is some excuse for a custom which appears cruel that of throwing contempt on the husband for the ill conduct of the wife above all things retain the politeness and attention of a lover and avoid that careless manner which wounds the vanity of human nature a passion given us as were all passions for the wisest ends and which never quits us but with life there is a certain attentive tenderness difficult to be described which the manly of our sex feel and which is peculiarly pleasing to woman tis also a very delightful sensation to ourselves as well as productive of the happiest consequences regarding them as creatures placed by providence under our protection and depending on us for their happiness is the strongest possible tie of affection to a well-turned mind if i did not know lucy perfectly i should perhaps hesitate in the next advice i am going to give you which is to make her the confidant and the only confidant of your gallantries if you are so unhappy as to be inadvertently betrayed into any her heart will possibly be at first a little wounded by the confession but this proof of perfect esteem will increase her friendship for you she will regard your error with compassion and indulgence and lead you gently back by her endearing tenderness to honour and herself of all tasks i detest that of giving advice you are therefore under infinite obligation to me for this letter be assured of my tenderest affection and believe me yours etc ed rivers letter one hundred and seventeen to the earl of blank Chilery, april eighth 
nothing can be more true my lord than that poverty is ever the inseparable companion of indolence i see proofs of it every moment before me with a soil fruitful beyond all belief the canadians are poor on lands which are their own property and for which they pay only a trifling quit-rent to their seigneurs this indolence appears in everything you scarce see the meanest peasant walking even riding on horseback appears to them a fatigue insupportable you see them lowly at ease like their lazy lords in carrioles and calashes according to the season a boy to guide the horse on a seat in the front of the carriage too lazy even to take the trouble of driving themselves their hands in winter folded in, in an immense muff though perhaps their families are in want of bread to eat at home the winter is passed in a mixture of festivity and inaction dancing and feasting in their gayer hours in their graver smoking and drinking brandy by the side of a warm stove and when obliged to cultivate the ground in spring to procure the means of subsistence you see them just turn the turf once lightly over and without manuring the ground or even breaking the clods of earth throw in the seed in the same careless manner and leave the event to chance without troubling themselves further till it is fit to reap i must however observe as some alleviation that there is something in the climate which strongly inclines both the body and mind but rather the latter to indolence the heat of the summer though pleasing enervates the very soul and gives a certain lassitude unfavorable to industry and the winter at its extreme binds up and chills all the active faculties of the soul add to this that the general spirit of amusement so universal here in winter and so necessary to prevent the ill effects of the season gives a habit of dissipation and pleasure which makes labor doubly irksome at its return their religion at which they are extremely bigoted is another great bar as well to industry as population their numerous festivals ignore them to idleness their religious houses rob the state of many subjects who might be highly useful at present and at the same time retard the increase of the colony sloth and superstition equally counterwork providence and render the bounty of heaven of no effect i am surprised the french who generally make their religion subservient to the purposes of policy do not discourage convents and lessen the number of festivals in the colonies where both are so peculiarly pernicious it is to this circumstance one may in great measure attribute the superior increase of the british american settlements compared to those of france a religion which encourages idleness and makes a virtue of celibacy is particularly unfavorable to colonization however religious prejudice may have been suffered to counterwork policy under a french government it is scarce to be doubted that this cause of the poverty of canada will by degrees be removed that these people slaves at present to ignorance and superstition will in time be enlightened by a more liberal education and gently led by reason to a religion which is not only preferable as being that of the country to which they are now annexed but which is so much more calculated to make them happy and prosperous as a people 
till that time till their prejudices subside it is equally just humane and wise to leave them the free right of worshipping the deity in the manner in which they have been early taught to believe the best and to which they are consequently attached it would be unjust to deprive them of any of the rights of citizens on account of religion in america where every other sect of dissenters are equally capable of employ with those of the established church nay where from whatever cause the church of england is on a footing in many colonies little better than a toleration it is undoubtedly in a political light an object of consequence everywhere that the national religion whatever it is should be as universal as possible agreement in religious worship being the strongest tie to unity and obedience had all prudent means been used to lessen the number of dissenters in the colonies i cannot avoid believing from what i observe and hear that we should have found in them a spirit of rational loyalty and true freedom instead of that factious one from which so much is to be apprehended it seems consonant to reason that the religion of every country should have a relation to and coherence with the civil constitution the romish religion is best adapted to a despotic government the presbyterian to a republican and that of the church of england to a limited monarchy like ours as therefore the civil government of america is on the same plan with that of the mother country it were to be wished the religious establishment was also the same especially in those colonies where the people are generally of the national church though with the fullest liberty of conscience to dissenters of all denominations i would be clearly understood my lord from all i have observed here i am convinced nothing would so much contribute to diffuse a spirit of order and rational obedience in the colonies as the appointment under proper restrictions of bishops i am equally convinced that nothing would so much strengthen the hands of government or give such pleasure to the well affected in the colonies who are by much the most numerous as such an appointment however clamoured against by a few abettors of sedition i am called upon for this letter and must remit to another time what i wished to say more to your lordship in regard to this country i have the honour to be my lord etc william fermore letter one hundred and eighteen to mrs melmoth at montreal salary april eighth i am indeed madam this inconsistent creature i have at once refused to marry colonel rivers and own to him all the tenderness of my soul do not however think me mad or suppose my refusal the effect of an unmeaning childish affection of disinterestedness i can form to myself no idea of happiness equal to that of spending my life with rivers the best the most tender the most amiable of mankind nor can i support the idea of his marrying any other woman i would therefore marry him to-morrow were it possible without ruining him without dooming him to a perpetual exile and obstructing those views of honest ambition at home which become his birth his connections his talent his time of life and with which as his friend it is my duty to inspire him his affection for me at present blinds him he sees no object but me in the whole universe 
but shall i take advantage of that inebriation of tenderness to seduce him into a measure inconsistent with his real happiness and interest he must return to england must pursue fortune in the world for which he was formed shall his emily retard him in the glorious race shall she not rather encourage him in every laudable attempt shall she suffer him to hide that shining merit in the uncultivated wilds of canada the seat of barbarism and ignorance which entitles him to hope a happy fate in the dear lands of arts and arms i entreat you to do all you can to discourage his design remind him that his sister's marriage has in some degree removed the cause of his coming hither that he can have now no motive for fixing here but his tenderness for me that i shall be justly blamed by all who love him for keeping him here tell him i will not marry him in canada that his stay makes the best mother in the world wretched that he owes his return to himself nay to his emily whose whole heart is set on seeing him in a situation worthy of him though without ambition as to myself i am proud i am ambitious for him if he loves me he will gratify that pride that ambition and leave canada to those whose duty confines them here or whose interest is to remain unseen let him not once think of me in his determination i am content to be beloved and will leave all else to time you cannot so much oblige or serve me as by persuading colonel rivers to return to england believe me my dear madam your affectionate emily montague letter one hundred and nineteen to mrs temple pall mall sillery april nine your brother my dear is gone to montreal to look out for a settlement and emily to spend a fortnight at quebec with a lady she knew in england who is lately arrived from thence by new york i am lost without my friend though my lover endeavours in some degree to supply her place he lays close siege i know not how long i shall be able to hold out this fine weather is exceedingly in his favour the winter freezes up all the avenues to the heart but this sprightly april sun thaws them again amazingly i was the cruelest creature breathing whilst the chilly season lasted but can answer for nothing now the sprightly may is approaching i can see papa is vastly in fitzgerald's interest but he knows our sex well enough to keep this to himself i shall however for decency's sake ask his opinion on the affair as soon as i have taken my resolution which is the very time which all the world ask advice of their friends a letter from emily which i must answer she is extremely absurd which your tender lovers always are adieu yours a fermor sir george clayton had left montreal some days before your brother arrived there i was pleased to hear it because with all your brother's good sense and concern for emily's honour and sir george's natural coldness of temper a quarrel between them would have been rather difficult to have been avoided letter one hundred and twenty to miss firmer quebec thursday morning do you think my dear that madame desroches has heard from rivers i wish you would ask her this afternoon at the governor's i am anxious to know but ashamed to inquire 
not my dear that i have the weakness to be jealous but i shall think his letter to me a higher compliment if i know he writes to nobody else i extremely approve of his friendship for madame desroches she is very amiable and certainly deserves it but you know belle it would be cruel to encourage an affection which she must conquer or be unhappy if she did not love him there would be nothing wrong with this writing to her but as she does it would be doing her the greatest injury possible tis as much on her account as my own i am thus anxious did you ever read so tender yet so lively a letter as rivers to me he is alike in all there is in his letters as in his conversation quote, all that can softly win or gaily charm the heart of a woman end quote. even strangers listen to him with an involuntary attention and hear him with a pleasure for which they scarce know how to account he charms even without intending it and in spite of himself but when he wishes to please when he addresses the woman he loves when his eyes speak the soft language of his heart when your emily reads in them the dear confession of his tenderness when that melodious voice utters the sentiment of the noblest mind that ever animated a human form my dearest the eloquence of angels cannot paint my rivers as he is i am almost inclined not to go to the governor's to-night i am determined not to dance till rivers returns and i know there are too many who will be ready to make observations on my refusal i think i will stay at home and write to him against monday's post i have a thousand things to say and you know we are continually interrupted at quebec i shall have this evening to myself as all the world will be at the governor's adieu your faithful emily montague letter 121 to miss montague at quebec sillery thursday morning i dare say my dear madame de roche has not heard from rivers but suppose she had if he loves you of what consequence is it to whom he writes i would not for the world any friend of yours should ask her such a question i shall call upon you at six o'clock and shall expect to find you determined to go to the governor's this evening and to dance fitzgerald begs the honour of being your partner believe me emily these kinds of unmeaning sacrifices are childish your heart is new to love and you have all the romance of a girl rivers would on your account be hurt to hear you had refused to dance in his absence though he might be flattered to know you had for a moment entertained such an idea i pardon you for having the romantic fancies of seventeen provided you correct them with the good sense of four-and-twenty adieu i have engaged myself to colonel h on the presumption that you are too polite to refuse to dance with fitzgerald and too prudent to refuse to dance at all your affectionate a fairmore letter one hundred and twenty two to miss firmer at salary quebec saturday morning how unjust have i been in my hatred of madame des roches she spent yesterday with us and after dinner desired to converse with me an hour in my apartment where she opened to me all her heart on the subject of her love for rivers she is the most noble and most amiable of women and i have been in regard to her the most capricious and unjust my hatred of her was unworthy my character i blush to own the meanness of my sentiments 
whilst I admire the generosity of hers. Why, my dear, should I have hated her? She was unhappy, and deserved rather my compassion. I have deprived her of all hope of being beloved. It was too much to wish to deprive her also of his conversation. I knew myself the only object of River's love. Why, then, should I have envied her of his friendship? She had the strongest reason to hate me, but I should have loved and pitied her. Can there be a misfortune equal to that of loving rivers without hope of a return? Yet she has not only borne this misfortune without complaint, but has been the confidant of his passion for another. He owned to her all his tenderness for me, and drew a picture of me, which she had told me, ought had she listened to reason, to have destroyed even the shadow of hope. But that love, ever ready to flatter and deceive, had betrayed her into the weakness of supposing it possible I might refuse him and that gratitude might, in that case, touch his heart with tenderness for one who loved him with the most pure and disinterested affection. That her journey to Quebec had removed the veil love had placed between her and truth, that she was now convinced the faint hope she had encouraged was madness, and that our souls were formed for each other. She owned she still loved him with the most lively affection, yet assured me, since she was not allowed to make the most amiable of mankind happy herself, she wished him to be so with the woman on earth she thought was most worthy of him. She added that she had him for seeing me, though she thought me very worthy of his heart, felt an impulse of dislike which she was ashamed to own, even now that reason and reflection had conquered so unworthy a sentiment, that River's complaisance had a little dissipated her chagrin and enabled her to behave to me in the manner she did. That she had, however, almost hated me at the ball in the country, that the tenderness in River's eyes that day whenever they met mine, and his comparative inattention to her, had wounded her to the soul. That this preference had, however, been salutary, though painful, since it had determined her to conquer a passion which could only make her life wretched if continued, that, as the first step to this conquest, she had resolved to see him no more, that she would return to her house the moment she could cross the river with safety, and conjure me, for her sake to persuade him to give up all thought of his settlement near her, that she could not answer for her own heart if she continued to see him, that she believed in love there was no safety but in flight, that his absence had given her time to think coolly, and that she now saw so strongly the amiableness of my character, and was so convinced of my perfect tenderness for him, that she should hate herself were she capable of wishing to interrupt our happiness that she hoped I would pardon her retaining a tender remembrance of a man who, had he never seen me, might have returned her affection, that she thought so highly of my heart as to believe I could not hate a woman who esteemed me, and who solicited my friendship, though a happy rival. I was touched, even to tears, at her behaviour. We embraced, and, if I know my own weak, foolish heart, I love her. She talks of leaving Quebec before River's return. She said her coming was an imprudence which only love could excuse, and that she had no motive for her journey but the desire of seeing him, which was so lively as to hurry her into an indiscretion of which she was afraid the world took, but too much notice. What openness, what sincerity, what generosity was there in all she said! How superior, my dear, is her character to mine! I blush for myself on the comparison! I am shocked to see how much she soars above me. How is it possible River should not have preferred her to me? Yet this is the woman I fancied incapable of any passion but vanity. I am sure, my dear Belle, I am not naturally envious of the merit of others, but my excessive love for Rivers makes me apprehensive of every woman who can possibly rival me in his tenderness. 
I was heard at Madame Desroches's uncommon merit. I saw with pain the amiable qualities of her mind. I could scarce even allow her person to be pleasing. But this injustice is not that of my natural temper, but of love. She is certainly right, my dear, to see him no more. I applaud, I admire her resolution. Do you think, however, she would pursue it if she loved as I do? She has perhaps loved before, and her heart has lost something of its native trembling sensibility. I wish my heart felt her merit as strongly as my reason. I esteem, I admire, I even love her at present, but I am convinced River's return while she continues here would weaken these sentiments of affection. The least appearance of preference, even for a moment, would make me relapse into my former weakness. I adore, I idolize her character, but I cannot sincerely wish to cultivate her friendship. Let me see you this afternoon at Quebec. I am told the road will not be passable for carriels, above three days longer. Let me therefore see you as often as I can before we are absolutely shut from each other. Adieu, my dear, your faithful Emily Montague. Letter 123 To the Earl of Blank Sillery, April 14th England, however populous, is undoubtedly, my lord, too small to afford very large supplies of people to her colonies, and her people are also too useful and of too much value to be suffered to emigrate, if they can be prevented whilst there is sufficient employment for them at home. It is not only our interest to have colonies, they are not only necessary to our commerce and our greatest and surest sources of wealth, but our very being as a powerful commercial nation depends on them it is therefore an object of all others most worthy our attention that they should be as flourishing and populous as possible it is however equally our interest to support them at as little expense of our own inhabitants as possible i therefore look on the acquisition of such a number of subjects as we found in canada to be a much superior advantage to that of gaining ten times the immense tract of land ceded to us if uncultivated and destitute of inhabitants but it is not only contrary to our interest to spare many of our own people as settlers in america it must also be considered that if we could spare them the english are the worst settlers on new lands in the universe their attachment to their native country especially amongst the lower ranks of people, is so strong that few of the honest and industrious can be prevailed upon to leave it. Those, therefore, who go are generally the dissolute and the idle, who are of no use anywhere. The English are also, though industrious, active, and enterprising, ill-fitted to bear the hardships and submit to the wants which inevitably attend an infant settlement even on the most fruitful lands the germans on the contrary with the same useful qualities have a patience a perseverance an abstinence which peculiarly fit them for the cultivation of new countries too great encouragement therefore cannot be given to them to settle in our colonies they make better settlers than our own people and at the same time their numbers are an acquisition of real strength where they fix without weakening the mother country. It is long since the populousness of Europe has been the cause of her sending out colonies. A better policy prevails. 
mankind are enlightened as we are now convinced both by reason and experience that no industrious people can be too populous the northern swarms were compelled to leave their respective countries not because those countries were unable to support them but because they were too idle to cultivate the ground they were a ferocious ignorant barbarous people averse to labor attached to war and like our american savages believing every employment not relative to this favorite object beneath the dignity of man their emigrations therefore were less owing to their populousness than to their want of industry and barbarous contempt of agriculture and every useful art it is with pain i am compelled to say the late spirit of encouraging the monopoly of farms which from a narrow short-sighted policy prevails among our landed men at home and the alarming growth of celibacy among the peasantry which is its necessary consequence to say nothing of the same ruinous increase of celibacy in higher ranks threaten us with such a decrease of population as will probably equal that caused by the ravages of those scourges of heaven the sword the famine and the pestilence if this selfish policy continues to extend itself we shall in a few years be so far from being able to send emigrants to america that we shall be reduced to solicit their return and that of their posterity to prevent england's becoming in its turn an uncultivated desert but to return to canada this large acquisition of people is an invaluable treasure if managed as i doubt not it will be to the best advantage if they are won by the gentle arts of persuasion and the gradual progress of knowledge to adopt so much of our manners as tends to make them happier in themselves and more useful members of the society to which they belong if with our language which they should by every means be induced to learn they acquire the mild genius of our religion and laws in that spirit of industry enterprise and commerce to which we owe all our greatness amongst the various causes which concur to render france more populous than england notwithstanding the disadvantage of a less gentle government and a religion so unfavorable to the increase of mankind the cultivation of vineyards may be reckoned a principal one as it employs a much greater number of hands than even agriculture itself which has however infinite advantages in this respect above pasturage the certain cause of a want of our people wherever it prevails above its due proportion our climate denies us the advantages arising from the cultural vines as well as many others which nature has accorded to france a consideration which should awaken us from the lethargy into which the avarice of individuals has plunged us and set us in earnest on approving every advantage we enjoy in order to secure us by our native strength from so formidable a rival the want of bread to eat from the late false and cruel policy of laying small farms into great ones and the general discouragement of tillage which is its consequence is in my opinion much less to be apprehended than the want of people to eat it in every country where the inhabitants are at once numerous and industrious there will always be a proportionable 
cultivation this evil is so very destructive and alarming that if the great have not virtue enough to remedy it it is to be hoped it will in time like most great evils cure itself your lordship inquires into the nature of this climate in respect to health the air being uncommonly pure and serene it is favorable to life beyond any i ever knew the people live generally to a very advanced age and are remarkably free from diseases of every kind except consumptions to which the younger part of the inhabitants are a good deal subject it is however a circumstance one cannot help observing that they begin to look old much sooner than the people in europe on which my daughter observes that it is not very pleasant for women to come to reside in a country where people have a short youth and a long old age the diseases of cold countries are in general owing to want of perspiration for which reason exercise and even dissipation are here the best medicines the indians therefore showed their good sense in advising the french on their first arrival to use dancing mirth cheerfulness and content as the best remedies against the inconveniences of the climate i have already swelled this letter to such a length that i must postpone to another time my account of the peculiar natural productions of canada only observing that one would imagine heaven intended a social intercourse between the most distant nations by giving them productions of the earth so very different each from the other and each more than sufficient for itself that the exchange might be the means of spreading the bond of society and brotherhood over the whole globe in my opinion the man who conveys and causes to grow in any country a grain a fruit or even a flower it never possessed before deserves more praise than a thousand heroes he is a benefactor he is in some degree a creator i have the honour to be my lord your lordships etc william fermore letter one hundred and twenty four to miss montague at quebec montreal april fourteenth is it possible my dear emily you can after all i have said persist in endeavouring to dissuade me from a design on which my whole happiness depends and which i flatter myself was equally essential to yours i forgave i even admired your first scruple i thought it generosity but i have answered it and if you had loved as i do you would never again have named so unpleasing a subject does your own heart tell you mine will call a settlement here with you an exile examine yourself well and tell me whether your aversion to staying in canada is not stronger than your tenderness for your rivers i am hurt beyond all words at the earnestness with which you press mrs melmoth to dissuade me from staying in this country you press with warmth my return to england though it would put an eternal bar between us you give reasons which though the understanding may approve the heart abhors can ambition come in competition with tenderness you fancy yourself generous when you are only indifferent insensible girl you know nothing of love write to me instantly and tell me every emotion of your soul for i tremble at the idea 
that your affection is less lively than mine adieu i am wretched till i hear from you is it possible my emily you can have ceased to love him who as you yourself own sees no other object than you in the universe adieu yours ed rivers you know not the heart of your rivers if you suppose it capable of any ambition but that dear one of being beloved by you what have you said my dear emily you will not marry me in canada you have passed a hard sentence on me you know my fortune will not allow me to marry you in england end of section seven end of the history of emily montague volume two by francis moorbrook